Well, don't expect too much sympathy from me. You have been a pain in our backside often enough. Oh, oh, your bedside manner's admirable, doctor. I'm sure your patients recover quickly just to get away from you. Oh. Space, the final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast, Give Me That Star Trek. It's ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 23 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today we're talking about bedside manner aboard Starfleet ships and outposts with Mike Peacock. Welcome to the show, Mike. <coughs> oh, oh, gosh. My apologies for coming here ill. Um, I apparently have not been to sick bay as of yet. I need to... I've been on a hectic away mission schedule. I am starting to feel a little bit ill. This is a good time that we're actually comparing these notes because it'll help me decide my best care. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, our the real world, or the present day, doesn't have mm, as good a medical system as the, 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 the future two, three, four hundred years hence. Um, unfortunately, I wish we did have that medicine that doesn't that doesn't intrude, you know, nobody has to cut you open in the future, it seems. Yeah, that's definitely a benefit. Also, you, well, the, again, we only see the ideal versions, but we can assume that there's no lengthy stays in, say, a waiting room, browsing through mm. People magazine, or possibly highlights if your medical office is, you know, definitely on the lower rung of publications. <laughs> and our own it's not like we're neither of us are doctors uh but uh we do both i think have a sort of tangential relationship with medicine uh what's yes, yours indeed uh for me uh and this is sort of i am loving to do this every so often a peek behind the curtain for listeners it never really panned out to an actual professional career, but for a section of time in my life, I did actually study medical billing and the study of not only just like the technical aspects, you know, like how to interpret medical bills and how to apply that so that people like you and me can figure out how much we're going to pay after all the insurance rigmarole. But it was also just the fascination of the anatomy studies as well that just reminded me that throughout my school period, not only just for that particular course, but just through even general education, science and medicine and the human body are quite intrinsically fascinating. So, again, it was an attempt in my life to enter the medical field. Hope does spring eternal that at some point I can actually gain entry into that field. But for right now, it is definitely something that I devoted a healthy amount of my educational time to, and I have a healthy appreciation for it. It also does not 
her either that my wife was also studying to be a nurse so she, occasionally when i have little blips and questions in relation to medicine she's actually pretty on the spot for answering my questions and just giving me feedback so how about yourself cisco <laughs> well you say like for people like you and me but i of course never receive medical bills uh, as I am a Canadian, but, <laughs> but <laughs> oh, well, yes, you, know. you live in that alternate dimension where that type of thing just doesn't occur. Yeah. <laughs> well, dental bills, dental bills are something, you know, <laughs> uh, we do pay for some things. Um, for me, well, actually, I think I lived your dream because I did work in medical billing as a teenager. Uh, my father's a uh, doctor, he's a, a general physician in um, in the states. And summers, you get your summer job under the table sort of thing without a green card. Uh, and um, I, for a while, uh, you know, input the bills into uh, computers and churned out insurance papers and all that kind of stuff at his clinic. So, so uh, I, I did touch on that. And, of course, basically working summers in a clinic is just a string of nurses wanting you trying to trick you into into cleaning the procto machine or uh, bringing <laughs> pee samples to the hospital that kind of stuff <laughs> oh well you live the dream okay the american and canadian dream and indeed the international dream by handling those containers. Mm. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the, the different doctors in Star Trek and how they rate as far as bedside manner, efficiency, and all of that stuff. But first, uh, before we get into it, Mike, the listeners need you to prove your Star Trek cred uh, with our usual quiz. Are you ready, sir? Oh, I've got my baseball cap on backwards. I got my pants lowered a little bit. I'm ready to earn my street cred here. All right. What does Star Trek mean to you? Where does it start for you? For me, you know, I've heard the story many times on your show. It's not really that much different for me. My parents were heavily into watching the syndication of Star Trek. And if I really dredged up my memories, I could figure out what affiliate it was that we watched it through. But growing up, Pretty much in our old neighborhood, it was just a piece where it's like Star Trek was a constant for me. In fact, this is probably going to either make me sound like I'm either deeply entrenched or a gigantic idiot. Because I remember in preschool, we actually had Star Trek coloring books at the time. I may have at the time taken McCoy's prognosis of Spock's blood quite literally. Because I remember every time in the coloring book, I would color Spock bright green because of that green Vulcan blood so he just looked like the Incredible Hulk with you know a widow's peak and eyebrows at that point you, but drew, you drew him blushing I did draw him blushing he was very he was a very blushing Vulcan maybe more human than we actually suspected at that point but as for what Star Trek means to me it's a good balance of just standard adventure. I mean, there's no denying it. No matter what version of Star Trek you're talking about, there is that adventurous spirit in there. But it also is definitely a spirit of hope. Like, I remember actually when the 50th anniversary occurred fairly recently, like it was about a year or two ago. It just reminded me, especially in light of real world circumstances, that Star Trek really does stand as a beacon of indeed a brighter future. That 
there is this place where you can have these grand galactic encounters, but there's also a place where you know that people have gone to someplace better, and I do believe that not only does Star Trek represent that as a fictional concept, but ideally it should serve as a realistic concept. What's your favorite iteration of the show? Original series is what I was growing up with, is what I was bred with. And even when I had, like, my lax periods of the show, I would also repeatedly view the movies, which, of course, for the most part, featured the original series cast. If I had to give a secondary option, I would say definitely Next Generation, because I remember being right on the ground floor when that premiered, and that was a huge event at the household at the time. It was, to give you people a indicator of how major an event it was, it was Little Caesar's Pizza Night for the premiere of Star Trek Next Generation. You don't order pizza for just slight programming choices. It requires something major, like the debut of a brand new Star Trek series. Yeah, It was big. My mom had a favorite character. I mean, (laughs) she doesn't go for (laughs) sci-fi, but she had a favorite character on that show. What about your favorite character? It's going to play my hand a little bit, and that my favorite character is Dr. McCoy, Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy. There's just something about his character that appealed to me as a kid. I guess it's just because of his usually exasperated nature. I just found it as a kid amusing, and as an adult, probably much closer to my own character as a person, as it were. Just in certain situations, I kind of find myself feeling much like McCoy. was just like, oh, God, you got to be serious, man. (laughs) (laughs) So the cantankerousness. Yes. As opposed to the passionate warmth. I do try for that, and (laughs) yes, my wife is definitely the reciprocant of it, but to also give a little peek behind the curtain to listeners, today we've been setting up for a new kitten in the house, and that definitely did raise my exasperation moments a few times, too, just cleaning out the space. Probably more frantic later tonight when we actually do bring our new guest home. Because you've already got a cat, so there's going to be some some hissing, possibly. Yes, uh, yeah, well, it may it won't involve the exact context, but there might be some possibly ponfar kind <laughs> of violence going on in the household if we're not careful. Uh, and what's your favorite alien species, finally? You know, I'm going to go for one that I feel sometimes, outside of the television series, is kind of underrepresented. I've always had a soft spot for the uh, Romulans myself. Oh, That's possibly the first time somebody's given that answer. To me, it's just sort of like the Romulans, they have the general appeal of the Vulcans, but with that uncontrolled portion. Like, they definitely have more of the edge. And again, like I said, I had lax periods. And if you think about it, when you weren't watching the series, really the only representation that they ever had cinematic-wise was, well, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> Insurrection. and Or the Nemesis, last... you mean. Yeah, Nemesis, thank you. That wasn't exactly the Romulan's Shining Hour. I believe that they are definitely a race that deserves a reevaluation because everybody can say that they do love the Klingons, and the Klingons were definitely a huge fascination for me for years. I mean, they made for the perfect foil for Starfleet, and then they made this great warrior subculture. But to me, the Romulans are just like, okay, this is what happens when you take control over to the drastically wrong edge of things. So that is why I've always found the Romulans to be really fascinating. And plus, 
just from a visual aesthetic point, there's just like that great militaristic design, not only to their costumes, but just to their ships, too. I mean, there's no denying that. As a fan of just science fiction, you, you gotta have like that great visual hook to kind of pull you in, and Romulans have that in spades. Good answers. Well, there are no wrong answers. You know he's not the kind of man who likes to see the world around him crumble to a ball around his feet. But he's always ready, he's always set, he's always well prepared. He's the most peculiar man you can be. He's not the king of bedside manner. He's not the Tom Jones of his next door. He's not the king of bedside manner. And he hardly even lives there anymore. Bedside manner. Okay, what do we even mean by that? Let's let's explore that concept for a second. What is a doctor's bedside manner? To me, I consider that to be, okay, let's just say, in theory, you break your arm. Okay, you're stuck in a hospital. Now, would you rather be looked over by a physician that was legitimately concerned about your well-being or, say, if you were in the hospital and all of a sudden it's just like, well, come on, you're taking up bed space. Get the heck out of here. What? It's just one little broken bone. Okay, here. Splint it up. Put a steel bar there. You're good to go. Now give us your money. (laughs) In your case, yeah. (laughs) Uh, What about doctors with comedy? What do you think of that? I mean, I'll I'll tell a, a, a personal story, I guess. I went for a colonoscopy recently and the doctor and nurse were all jokes. It seemed like a very jovial environment, except for a very unpleasant procedure. Maybe they were looking forward to the profits <laughs> they would get from the sale of your video footage. <laughs> is, is there a black market for that? Just saying, people. Dark web. Dark oh. web at that point. <laughs> Doctors having a bit of character does help. I mean, to give you also an example, about a year or two ago, when I first started moving in with my now-wife, I started getting more familiarized with her doctor. And he is a wonderful person. But there's just a just an element of difference with him, because I notice he's also very pleasant, but he's also pretty uh, short of answers. So sort of like, you know, you do appreciate interacting with him, but he also doesn't really have, a, apparently, a lot of time for conversation. So it's not really hostile, but I'm also sometimes just kind of feeling like, well, I'm kind of being shot in and out of this office, even with some concerns at the time, so... Because certainly, you're trusting someone with your life, uh, or at least your your health or your well-being. And if that person is not particularly warm or doesn't seem to have a, I don't know, a chemical bond with you, it can seem off-putting. Like, I guess the bedside manner is meant to build trust. And that trust is is necessary if you're going to follow doctor's orders or if you're going to feel comfortable enough to discuss your health problems. Yes. I mean, it is a very intimate procedure, whatever health ordeal you are going through, whether it's just a minor checkup or maybe something as significant as an injury or an illness. You definitely need to build that bond because otherwise you're going to be spending a lot of time with this person regardless. So you can't have like a communication wall with them. You can't really have any sort of discomfiture with them. You have to be able to know that you can trust them both as a personal character and also as somebody that is deeply skilled in their trade. Today we're basically looking at mm, six Starfleet doctors or Star Trek doctors. 
Um, I think one of them isn't actually Starfleet, technically. So we're looking at uh, Dr. McCoy from the original series. We're looking at Beverly Crusher from Next Generation. We'll take a gander at Dr. Pulaski, who was a replacement for a season. We'll be looking at Julian Bashir, the, the frontier doctor. And, uh, of course, the emergency medical hologram from Voyager. And uh, Phlox wasn't strictly Starfleet, but Phlox from Enterprise. We're not touching Discovery here today because there's been so little medical action in that show. And uh, the, we haven't even met the chief medical officer. We've had like an ancillary doctor who is the really his real role is to be the, the husband of another character. So let's leave Discovery for another day when we need to update all these podcasts. But so we've got six. We've got six doctors to, to compare and uh, to look at. So what are the what are the, the, the elements that we want to be looking at on each of these doctors? Well, the elements that I would have us look at, I mean, outside of Bedside Manor, we also want to discuss their just general overall efficiency. Like, how would we want to see them in terms of, like, I guess basically just processing the concerns of their Starfleet charge, and also their ability to transition and or contribute to away missions, because if you're a doctor in Starfleet, it is safe to say that you are going to see action, and it is essentially a military outpost, like you are a military medical doctor. And as history has shown, you could be a frontline surgeon, but you are still going to have to be in the trenches. And yes, Starfleet, you are on a ship, but you are kind of essentially serving in a mobile, I don't want to say war zone, if you know what I mean, but still, it is a med- uh, military capacity. So you have to be able to cross over your medical skills with actually accomplishment of side missions as well. So, okay, let's uh, get into it then. We just go doctor by doctor, let's say? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, well, let's go from, to the beginning. Well, not exactly the beginning. I mean, there are a couple of doctors before McCoy that we don't really care about. Uh, you know, Dr. Piper. and So, McCoy, Leonard H. This won't hurt a bit, Spock. An unnecessary assurance doctor, in addition to being untrue. That's the last time I waste my bedside manner on a Vulcan. Well, obviously he's your favorite Star Trek character, so you're going to give him a glowing recommendation here. Yes, uh, he would definitely rank quite highly in terms of, let's just say he was my physician right now. I would also recommend to people, don't take anything he says necessarily to 100% heart. He does have (laughs) your best interests at mind, but still, he's also going to speak his mind and... Whatever he usually says from directly his mind isn't always going to be the best thing you're going to hear in terms of personal character, but it is probably sometimes what you need to hear as a patient at that point. He's probably the the one doctor we see the most making house calls. That is true, yes. he's. I'd probably say out of all the doctors that we'll be talking about today, he's probably the most active, I would say, in terms of not only just his ship's duties, but also his field mission duties like he's probably the first to just leap on his feet even though he probably grumble and complain all the way through to just sort of contribute to any crisis at that point because he'll show up at your quarters with some booze for example there is a the country doctor element to it but uh, also this is all pre having a counselor aboard uh, later on you know you're supposed to have a counselor you know it's also part of his work to be a psychologist to be the therapist, to visit the people who are maybe feeling a little uh, distressed and just bring something, you know, even if it's a, you know, a bottle of wine or 
probably Linnaeal or something. <laughs> but you know, to, to bring something, it, it's not healthy to, to drink alcohol necessarily. Although in the future, who knows? They probably got a pill that fixes all that. Is that part of why we like McCoy so much? That he's also your therapist, but he acts like he's your friend. Yes, I mean. He not only is just an efficient physician as itself, but it's like you said, there are no established rules in terms of having, I guess one could say an HR slash counselor representative on the ship. So he does add those personal touches where, again, he's looking out for your physical well-being, but he's also looking out for your mental well-being. And that is something that would also earn high marks as just a physician as well because they're not only concerned about just your physical health they want to make sure that your body is in full operational order but they also want to make sure that your mind is in operational order they may not have all the necessary tools and resources to treat i guess mental issues Although, again, booze goes a long way to assist in that aspect in life. But <laughs> it is definitely heartening to know that McCoy was so willing to fill those shoes in just assisting his crew and his charges with just even their mental well-being at that point. You know, he was definitely concerned for all aspects of the Starship Enterprise. Well, the doctor in the cage, Christopher Pike's doctor, was also had that relationship. Obviously, they're written from the same template on a real-world kind of basis. But it seems to me that maybe when you've got like a small 400-man crew, everybody's got to have more than one skill. They're, you know, you can't have a full department. Uh, and maybe all the Starfleet doctors have to also have that training and have that dimension. How it manifests, that's up to you. And I think that's very much McCoy's style is to be neighborly, let's say. Uh, he is like a small town doctor, is how he feels. Oh, totally. Yes. He has a just general good folk kind of atmosphere to his approach. And that's what makes him so approachable, honestly, as not only a character, but somebody who I could ideally see as treating my ailments. Just having that stark openness, it is quite refreshing to know that, yes, he is going to tell me what I need to hear, but he's also going to definitely try and elicit a reaction, whether humorous or maybe intentionally or unintentionally at that point. But he is somebody that has that skill set that can definitely put you at ease. What do you think of him on uh, an away team? I'm sorry, a landing party. Let's use the uh, the vernacular of the time. <laughs> well, as his efficiency as a landing party member, there's no question. I mean, think about it. Without McCoy, we wouldn't have what is essentially the trinity, as it were, of the original series. It would just feel so empty without what he contributes to landing party missions, in particular, without him being a primary element. I think he's actually very effective as being a personality actively taking part in missions. I, we can think of things like uh, Friday's Child, for example, where you know he's in charge of the pregnant princess, and let's call her a princess. It's his personality bouncing off her, and it's it's more again. He's the psychologist. He's a little. It's more than just the medicine part. It's about controlling the situation. It's about giving the patient what they need to respect 
his prognosis and his diagnostic. Uh, that's one example that comes to mind, obviously, on away teams. He's always at his best, just bouncing off Spock. They throw these two into situations together, uh, you know, like, uh, like on the Nazi planet or the Roman planet, so that they can have the jokes, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> bouncing off one another. Totally. I am in 100% agreement. And he's not invulnerable to having things go belly up in missions as well for his contributions. But still, even when you know that he's at a crisis point himself, he can still manage to work his way around particularly precarious pieces on his own. He doesn't... I want to say he necessarily always requires rescuing just on his own being he's not a liability all the tos crew are really fist fighting kind of heroes <laughs> whether they have a background in science medicine or what have you well i think that also kind of ties in with i guess the general nature of the original series as a whole because when i viewed it recently through various episodes it's just kind of like you know what they often talk about oh is star trek a bit more of a militaristic kind of take on the future, even with its idealistic notions. I think if you look at the original series a bit more, you could see the elements of that more, because all the crew members definitely do have a bit more of a rougher, I guess, slightly combative nature to their training. Like, they aren't afraid to mix it up. So that does show that they have received some sort of defense training. And do we want to mention at all that all these doctors that we're talking about don't all have a dedicated nurse? Uh, but the relationship with the nurse is, you know, very much a, a, an important part of being a doctor and maybe even be a bedside manner team, uh, in a sense. So what do we think of uh, Nurse Chapel? Well, you know, outside of maybe needing a cold shower and a fan afterwards, no, she is actually also a very efficient member of Starfleet and the medical field. It's kind of weird that sometimes I am tertiarily aware of Chapel, but it's just kind of also unusual that she doesn't really appear all that frequently. So it's just sort of like I'm aware of her, but I also have sometimes lapses where it's just like, oh yeah, Nurse Chapel was part of the crew. Oh yeah, she was. Yeah, well they also had Dr. Mabega and yeah, well Chapel is kind of, unfortunately the original series has a lot of uh, sexism to it. When it comes to... No. Well, yes. And so uh, the, the nurse archetype, so to speak, is sort of fawning over Mr. Spock in her case. And Dr. McCoy will be the one sort of sending her away, sort of, you know, breaking the spell. It's like, nurse, don't you have any duties? You know, it's played as the lovelorn nurse from romance comics. <laughs> that was also a kind of soap operatic trope of the time, too. I mean, if you think about it, also, medical soap operas were actually fairly large at the time. I, I don't want to guesstimate right now, and I don't have any information in front of me, but I could have sworn that maybe about that time, maybe General Hospital was starting. It could have been a later phenomenon. All I know is when I was growing up, everybody was freaking out about Rick Springfield, so there's that connection. <laughs> You can't move because one of the containers shattered seven of your vertebrae and crushed your spinal cord. I'm afraid there's no way we can repair this kind of injury.
Dr. Crusher, let's move on. Let's move like 80 years into the future. And we have Beverly Crusher aboard the Enterprise D. Now, I thought about my approach to Beverly Crusher and thinking about her bedside manner. And the best way I can describe her, and you may agree or disagree, but it's a piece where she definitely is efficient. But she's also a bit of a cold fish in terms of a personality. Crusher has like this professional side. That's how you describe it. And then there's that personal side where, you know, the, the dancing doctor and the, the one that's putting on plays. It seems to have a large piece of the social life aboard the Enterprise, uh, which I wonder how that relates, you know, as far as the character goes. Uh, obviously, this is a more passionate artistic doctor or side to her uh, that we don't see so much in Sigbe. Is that not maybe her expression of the idea that, that McCoy... Uh, brings you, uh, you know, a bottle of booze. It's about the welfare of the crew, but the mental, social welfare of it, even though, obviously, it should be Troy's job, but maybe Troy's not, not very artistic. I don't know. Well, Troy is spending a lot of her time trying to guesstimate how other people are feeling. So <laughs> that is occupying a lot of her schedule. So you're one of those people who say that uh, Troy is um, faking empathy? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I could spend a day at the office looking at people and going, I sense maybe some discomfort in this other person, and I'm just kind of watching walking down the aisleway. I sense aggression. Yes. <laughs> Except I won't look nearly as attractive as Counselor Deanna Troy. So there's that as well. I don't fit the outfit from the first season quite as nicely as she does. Mm. So does Crusher uh, leave you wanting uh, as far as Bedside Manor goes? There's just something about her, even from the beginning, where she, maybe it's also just because I always flash back to my very first impression of her, which as we all had our very first impressions of the Next Generation crew from Encounter at Farpoint. Now, they altered those characters throughout the many seasons, but still, gut instinct, the first impression usually is the lasting impression that you get. And even as a kind of date myself, I think it was like maybe about seven or eight-year-old when I saw that season premiere, I'm just kind of like, well, okay, this is a person that makes Captain Picard uncomfortable. This is also the person that foisted Wesley Crusher on the crew. And there's just something about her in that very first gut reaction exposure from Farpoint that just made me go, she's good at her job, but there's just something about her personality that time that I'm just like, doesn't quite click with me. Dexon didn't do very well with its female characters initially. You know, Natasha Yar, the actress, wanted out because she wasn't getting good things to, to play. Uh, Beverly Crusher got out of there as well after a season, and we got Pulaski uh, instead until she returned. They never really wrote to her much, so she has fewer episodes. Maybe her personality isn't as on point as other characters. I think it's true of Troy as well, who should have been a very uh, light and funny character based on the actress who played Laser, uh, instead was also a very cold, kind of remote person. And those two together were supposed to be in charge of your welfare aboard the ship. Yeah. They're your health professionals. Yeah, and this was also an initiative, you could tell just from the increased female presence on the crew, this was supposed to be more of an inclusive crew. But again, when elements of your inclusiveness are portrayed as essentially kind of a little bit remote. It doesn't really help the atmosphere. Crusher also has a nurse, uh, Nurse Ogawa, who we got 
to know a little bit. And she seems a lot warmer as a character. I, I wonder if that's, you know, a doctor can play off a doctor who feels a little bit remote themselves or not, don't connect with people as well might use a warmer nurse just to get the patient at ease and all that. From not only just appointments that I've had, but also learning the trade as well from other people. Yes, nurses do have an integral part of sort of warming you up for your doctor. So having a welcoming nurse, like in the case of Ogawa, does help you kind of become more open with your primary physician, in this case, Dr. Crusher, who, again, you may not think is necessarily the most, I guess, open personality, but it is somebody that, once you have that solid opening, you can relate to them more. It's too bad that, because Crusher is the only main doctor on this list who is, who is female, and I, I personally, when I think of healthcare professionals, I prefer women. So I have a, I have a female eye doctor, I have a female dentist, I, you know, it's pretty much my situation. I don't have a, a family doctor, but I would want a woman generally. Uh, I don't know why that, I don't necessarily know why that is, but I feel more comfortable with a female health professional. Actually, uh, just a few weeks ago, I had my first like regular eye doctor appointment with my wife. We went to a facility. We actually had our first uh, female doctor assisting us. And you do have a point that there is just something that, I guess, puts you a bit more at ease with them. It's just an intangible quality. And I wish that would have carried over a bit more with Crusher. But again, just from my initial reaction and from revisiting Next Generation many times throughout my life, she, again, just never really picked up much resonance with me in terms of bedside manner. Like, I know she could get the job done, but I don't want to really necessarily, if I were in that ship and in those shoes of the officers serving aboard the Enterprise D... I wouldn't want to necessarily open up to her. You know what I mean? And what about her replacement, uh, Pulaski? <laughs> well, let's <laughs> put it this way. Um, Beverly Crusher is practically, oh, I'm trying to think of a really warm personality to compare her to. Let's just say that if she was cold, then Pulaski is basically a gigantic glacier. Except if it's a glacier that would insult you at the same time, too. <laughs> I mean, weren't they trying to... to, to... Pull a, a McCoy on us? You may be able to sell Troy that story, but not me. You know, I, I almost run the risk of maybe sounding sexist, but I think they ratcheted her up to a point where it's just, it's not so much country doctor as it is just sort of like almost at times being a bit unpleasant i well she d was antagonistic towards perhaps one of the most you know the the character your heart went out to the most which was data having a difficult relationship with data even though he doesn't he can't really care was not a good position to put that character in uh, if we were to embrace her the other way i could put it is while Crusher didn't exactly resonate with me, it kind of applies to real life, too, because think about it. You're seeing somebody on a regular basis in terms of your physical well-being, and then all of a sudden, oh, hey, we replaced your primary care physician with somebody else. Just for this one instance, this one or two checkups, they're going to have a completely different set of characteristics. We don't know if you're going to warm up to them or not. That is, I think, the case legitimately with Pulaski, mm -hmm. in that you've 
kind of gotten a rough establishment of familiarity with Crusher, but then all of a sudden, here's this brand new element that you're supposed to become more intimate with and share your health details with, and it just doesn't quite work because that person is not the same personality you've grown used to. Obviously, people in the military have to go through this. Anyone who doesn't have a a family doctor and who's, you know, basically depends on clinics and uh, emergency room are going to never see the same person. But if you are with a family doctor and that family doctor retires, for example, or maybe is always on vacation or golfing or whatever when you need them, and then for that one time or from then on, you get foisted someone else that works at the same clinic, you know, someone else at the same office. And uh, the person that you kind of selected and grown used to is gone and now you have someone else who may have a completely different style. Yeah, that can be a real impediment to the doctor-patient relationship. Well, I would also like to think that, you know, I about a year... Yeah, it was about a year ago. I would like to think that the people from the MedExpress clinic would remember me because, hey, how many other people can slice their thumb quite as efficiently as I did on a piece of kitchenware? So... <laughs> I like to do it on um, seashells. Uh, <laughs> stuff that happens uh, when you're on an away team. Well, speaking of away team, Pulaski didn't do much in that sense. But uh, if we go back to Crusher, she wasn't on, on that many away teams either when you compare it to, to McCoy. I guess that's the new paradigm. Well, it's yeah, it is like you illustrated earlier. With the reshifting of priorities for Starfleet, I guess retconning their priorities... With Next Generation, you did notice that some people just kind of stuck more towards their specific trade on the ship, as it were. So, with that in mind, Crusher, with her being an on-ship physician, the chief medical officer, that would essentially just be her post. So, it is kind of strange to see that she didn't partake in as many away team missions, because... Again, having a military setup, ideally want her on a mission in case something just goes completely wrong. But no, she was mostly shipbound most of the time. Well, they got better at beaming people to and from discrete parts of the ship. So you could suddenly beam up to Sigbay directly. I think that's what killed her participation. Totally. Uh, yeah, once you have like the instant uh, teleportation method to get you from your point of crisis to a medical facility. You really don't need to be on missions. I mean, it was definitely more roughshod in the original series, where it is just sort of like you need him to participate in a lot of these adventures, not only just from a character standpoint, but also just from a practicality standpoint, because it was written more in mind from an older style of medical military participation. Whereas this one or the next generation approach, you do have more of an enlightened, I guess, sense of the medical field, and they want to add the technological benefits to that approach. So, yes, they can get patients out to her much quicker. Now, I wonder what you'll make of Julian Bashir, because this is a very different uh, setup. It's an outpost. It's a combination of several, a lot of alien species, or I say alien as compared to humans. It's a combined crew. And he's also a very, almost more interested in medical science and studying uh, more than maybe the medical part of it. I didn't want some cushy job or a research grant. I wanted this. The farthest reaches of the galaxy. 
One of the most remote outposts available. This is where the adventure is. This is where heroes are made. Right here. In the wilderness. This wilderness is my home. Cardassians left behind a lot of injured people. Doctor, you can make yourself useful by bringing your Federation medicine to the natives. Oh, you'll find them a friendly, simple folk. So what do you make of Julian Bashir? You know, he's an odd case where I wouldn't necessarily want him as my physician, but as a personality, there was just that sense of, I guess, enthusiastic discovery that he had that still made him an appealing person for me to watch as a witness of Deep Space Nine. And I say witness because, yes, shock confession time, people. I do admit Deep Space Nine is one of my really bad weak spots in Star Trek. I think I actually watched the first full season, and for some strange reason, I never really continued on. I know people speak the earth of Deep Space Nine, and eventually I will get to it. But it was just a piece where it's like, yeah, I do remember really liking Bashir and just the series, but it just kind of floated out of my periphery after a time, you know what I mean? I can fill in the blanks, but I mean... Yes, he starts off as very enthusiastic, and he gets a couple of showcase episodes, uh, you know, the one where they all get aphasia and all that. You know, as a doctor, we don't see a whole lot of that. He's there for the frontier medicine. He's excited about the possibility of meeting new life. And as the show goes on, we find out he's a, he's a bit of a genius. So he seems to be like this more intellectual figure later on, once the youthful zest is out. I, I have to wonder if he has a good bedside manner. That's what I don't know about him necessarily. We understand him through his friendship with Miles O'Brien. We understand him as a genetic mutant with you know high brain capacity who can calculate things in his mind. They went all sorts of directions with him. But the medicine seemed to be almost secondary at one point. You wouldn't necessarily want him assisting with your urgent care needs. It's just one of those pieces where, again, I remember distinctly from what I have seen at the show. It's just, again, that spark of personality that can make anybody, not just in the medical field, but anybody period, that much more appealing. So having that sense of excitement and discovery in a person does kind of make them still intrinsically appealing. Again, not to the point where, let's just say, I don't want them operating an endoscope or whatever to start a version of an endoscope would be at that point. They wouldn't even probably require one. I wouldn't want him doing so. But I would at least like to at least engage with him and also to maybe share a bit of that excitement. I guess if we had a, like a rare disease or a mystery disease, uh, he would be maybe one of the best because we've seen him work tirelessly through, you know, days and days trying to find answers to medical questions. He's undoubtedly the smartest uh, on paper of all the doctors. So you'd want him working on your case. I do wonder, well, I'm asking you this question. Many people have this prejudice. Let's call it a prejudice. But how do you feel about pull the straw and it's uh, the younger doctor, much younger than yourself? Is that a problem for you as a patient or do you feel something different? Ageism for me personally is not an element. I mean, if you show that you are indeed qualified, then it doesn't honestly matter. I mean, to kind of give a vague impression of what I do personally, 
and no quoting my exact like profession, but I work essentially kind of in the legal field, honestly, and there are probably a lot of attorneys that I've dealt with that are indeed younger than me, and I'm not spending my time looking at them going, oh, geez, look at that guy, Mr. So-and-so, who actually has a legitimate law degree. <laughs> oh, I hate that jerk so badly. It really is more of a matter of personality for me. If you showcase a quality personality in terms of a person, then you could either be as elderly as, say, like in your 70s or 80s, or you could be operatively in your 20s, and you would still be just as appealing of a personality to me in terms of just not only just general interaction, but even also professional interaction. Please state the nature of the medical emergency. The EMH in Voyager. Now, now, what I found amusing when I was doing my research is that they just refer to him as doctor for my research. And I really wanted to tweak you and a lot of the listeners by just calling him, oh, hey, it's the doctor. It is the doctor. <laughs> he is the doctor. Yeah. However, that bears a very significant meaning to a lot of fandoms out there. So don't worry, people. I won't press the issue. But what about that doctor, right? The, the doctor was going to originally be called Dr. Zimmerman, and he had all sorts of different... He tried different names, but at the end of the day, he's just the doctor, Voyager's doctor. Uh, and he's not, um, I mean, he's the first that we get who is, he isn't human. He's not even a biological person. If you had to force me into a second choice, I would say he probably is my second most favorite physician. In terms of bedside manner for uh, essentially a program, he is exceedingly personable and he is also exceedingly knowledgeable as well. Like a lot of people really do and are foaming at the mouth to shoot down Voyager. But I will say the EMH is probably undeniably one of the high spots of Voyager. Like that is almost without dispute. Yeah, agreed. And he did very well in our Star Trek bracket a couple months ago. In some way, he is... I know he developed a personality and he's a person. He's a person by the end of the show. But is there a sense that he is essentially the internet on which you're looking for? You, you know, you're looking for your <laughs> symptoms on the internet. And, like you don't need to talk to a person, at least as far as the technology goes. Because if these EMHs exist across all of Starfleet at that point, even though maybe it's just an emergency unit that you know for triage and whatnot is there a value to that that you don't need to actually tell a person uh what you're feeling it's a machine hmm you know it just really depends i mean i would say that if you were a active member of starfleet and yes this includes like essentially shipwrecked wandering members of starfleet like the voyager crew you would have, I guess, a more stabilized version in your head of medical care. So let's just say you are dealing with what is almost a walking version of WebMDing yourself. You are still dealing with a WebMD that has a more, I guess, explanatory version of looking up your symptoms than, say, you reading it yourself. And as a member of Starfleet, you aren't going to instantly freak out when you see, oh, wait, am I supposed to have that rash? Oh, gee, is it supposed to be that color? Oh, man, I better stay home today. I better call the emergency clinic because I might have cancer at this point. But, but then you've got this, your, your answers are, are personified. And, uh, and I, I'm not sure the bedside manner is all that strong with the doctor, is it? Uh, do you know, as a program, he does show 
examples of concern, but I can see your point because there is always going to be that physical barrier. But for him as well, since he's he can't leave Sigbay, and of course this isn't the doctor who's going to make house calls, at least until he gets that portable emitter. A lot of people in the show at first find him off-putting. Not because he's a machine, but and maybe that's because they are treating him as a machine. That may be the problem. Uh, he bristles at that, but he seems very impatient with uh, humanity. He seems very, uh, you know, stop moving, stop wriggling around. He's, he complains a lot. If you look at it that way too, he is very much like a real old physician. Part of him is McCoy, but McCoy's been is part of his matrix. Uh, it, it was like reference at one point. It makes sense. I mean, he is more definitely machine exacting than McCoy, but you do see the elements of that appealing exasperation with people. And it's also part of the exasperation that many physicians probably also have with people as well. And he, just like uh, Beverly Crusher, uh, sort of bounced. I mean, he was thrown into a situation where normally he would be part of a medical staff not the central doctor or the only doctor. He's forced to evolve. Uh, and part of that evolution is using, at first, Kess as a nurse. And Kess is a very personable character, a sweet character. He's doing the same thing that Crusher does with Ogawa, if that's indeed what's happening, by bouncing off someone who is a little more personable and can warm up the patients. And then, of course, he's also got Tom Paris as his as a nurse for a while. That doesn't work out so well. Indeed. Uh, yeah, Paris, uh, not quite equivalent to assisting, then, say, Cass at that point. <laughs> what a dedicated healer you must be. You're a long way from home. What brought you here? Practicing your bedside manner. I enjoy a good challenge. Let's go back in time to the beginnings of Starfleet. And there you have Phlox, who is our first alien as a doctor. Uh, certainly the first who's not a Starfleet a personnel or, or construct. And he uses a lot of natural medicine, I guess. I guess that's what we might call it. All his, you know, his animal collection and some of these things are, you know, make cures. And uh, it's just a different approach to medicine. What did you think of that character? Well, before I possibly make a rather controversial statement, I want your impression first, actually. I think Phlox is, even though he's non-human, he's probably the warmest, and in terms of bedside manner, he's probably the one who smiles the most, the one who seems, I don't know, there's, there's something really kind and funny and, you know, about the character that would probably make you know, put me at ease as a patient. Ah, now this is where we get to the juncture here. I'm going to say, I never really felt that he was... Ex he just had like this... And it's not because he is the first, I guess, non-human doctor for Starfleet. It's not exactly predicated on that. But from my exposures for Dr. Flox, I'm just like, there's something about him that kind of unnerves me a little bit as a patient. There's like a disconnect for his delivery of his prognoses and the way he interacts with the crew. It's just kind of, to me, it doesn't come off as warm as it necessarily comes off as really intensely clinical at times, which is weird because of his natural approach to medicine. But when I've watched him in action in various episodes, it's just like, I don't know if I'd really want this person treating me because there's just something that I perceive in his character that just kind of puts me at a bit of a distance. Obviously, especially with a almost all human crew, um, there are only two aliens aboard, right? 
it would seem like, well, are we trusting our health to someone who is not even of our species and who is, has learned about humanity secondhand, so to speak? That can't possibly have been his first diploma, you know, uh, human biology. So I get that. And I, I'm not sure I would pick him as my personal physician, but I don't know. There's, there's a, a fun lollipop handing pediatrician vibe I get from him. <laughs> there's something. And I, I do like the idea that he's, yes, he's very clinical, very professional in a sense. Uh, he will blurt out more or less what's wrong with you. Uh, you know, without, you, he won't like sugarcoat it necessarily. And you might find that, ooh, um, upsetting and a bit blunt. But there is also says it in a way, I think the delivery is also congenial. It's like he deflates the drama of the thing that ails you. I, I've seen that in doctors, jokiness or just making it feel like, oh, there, you know, there's no cause for worry yet uh, by, okay. by putting humor, uh, like a humorous spin into it or a light spin in the voice. I don't know if it's calculated. Yeah, I do definitely see your perspective. It's just, again, from my first impressions, it was just kind of like, I don't know, there's just something, and it, it is not due to the genuine biology, like, I don't want listeners out there to go, well, he's obviously, you know, a hardwired American, so it's like, oh, hey, anything that's fur and, ooh, get away from me, but no, it is definitely a piece where it's just, I don't know, there was something about his specific bedside manner while I was watching, intangible, I guess, that would make me go, I just don't want him to kind of investigate my own health concerns. <laughs> well, he was meant to be like the really an oddball kind of you know character within the show. And when the crew would walk into Sigbay, it would be a bit of a horror show, you know. And to me, I, I guess I, I'm not sure if they were going for this, but there is an element of you know putting a science fiction spin on something we've all felt walking into an exam room or a, a lab uh, at the hospital and um there's like a strange machine or an odd procedure or something that's i mean what's the difference between some of the procedures that we willingly undergo and you know somebody putting like a strange starfish on your face or whatever's going to happen <laughs> in Flox's med bay it's the same sort of alien terror uh for us it's the equipment in Enterprise, that equipment is, you know, because they live in a technological utopia or getting there, they don't fear machines. Right, right. But they might fear whatever's in that tank that, that Flocks has, has kept alive, you know. So it's just like making their fears are translated into a science fiction concept. I think it's still the, the same feeling we might understand ourselves uh, going to a health professional. Yeah, I mean, it is definitely sort of the sense of, I guess, the unnatural, as it were. Because mm -hmm. you know that this equipment, or indeed bio biological attachments, they are going to assist you, but they're not part of your everyday life. We need to also bear in mind, too, that this is also from Enterprise, where... A lot of this stuff is also new to just even the burgeoning Starfleet as a 
element as well. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. it's still just hard, I guess, technology at that point. You, Again, Phlox, not much on away teams as far as I remember. No, he really doesn't participate a lot on away missions. I primarily remember him serving on a ship, and it's not, again, because of, for a long stretch of time, physical limitations like the EMH from Voyager. It's just more of like, okay, this may have been just his hardwired position, which, if you think about it, Enterprise was supposed to take place, obviously, before the original series, so you'd almost expect Phlox to be even more so active on the field, since they're still finding their footing as an exploratory crew. But then they don't even get a Starfleet doctor aboard, so uh, maybe you know he's not he's not Starfleet, so he's not willing to go on away missions, or that's not part of the deal. Uh, but they, yeah, they sidelined. In the show, that's that's one of the problems that writers have to, to tackle is what do you do with someone who's the doctor or the chief engineer? People who have, as you said earlier, posts. You know, they're manning a post. And it's harder to believe that that person will be taken out of that post and sent to a planet or on another ship or whatever it is to conduct their duties there. In as large a ship as the Enterprise D, you know, your CMO would stay there and someone else... You know, another a lesser doctor, a lower ranked doctor would go on away missions. Uh, you know, a field medic would go on away missions. Your specialist that deals with away team stuff, which is injuries or checking the air for, for bugs, whatever it is, that person would actually be sent. If this were, you know, a logical kind of setup, which it isn't, it's television and you've got to give your cast something to do, even though they may be, you know, higher up. Uh, on the the poll. Yeah, that is like one specialty I will give DS9 credit for because the physician there is the physician. They do not, as a series as a whole, do not specialize in away situations. So he is essentially at that post at all times. So, of course, that would make perfect sense that, yes, he would be the primary source and he wouldn't have to worry about filling in gaps. Going back to, say, the original series... It's really weird when you consider that with uh, Roddenberry's own military experience, he wouldn't factor in those specific posts. But then again, maybe they restructured after a certain point in the military itself, because maybe when he was actively participating, they had people operating in specific functions, but were also going outside of their prescribed functions. And just speaking as a personal professional as well, yes, I have my own designated position, but I also do find myself quite often filling in for other positions as well. But then again, I don't exactly exist on a starship of hundreds, if not thousands, of other people manning other posts. So in a group of the 50 or 60 that exist in my office space, yes, it is smaller, and so I can shift around a little bit more outside of just my specific station. When I had Mike Lacroix on the show talking about the, you know, is Starfleet military and how does that compare to the actual military, I think it was him who pointed out, if not him, then soon after in some of the comments or whatever, uh, someone pointed out that Roddenberry's experience was aboard a bomber. And that's a very small crew. Everyone is supposed to know everyone's duties, uh, be able to, to carry on other people's duties. It's not like he was working on a big boat. So his particular experience is probably more like what we see in the original series. Uh, whereas if you look at the military today or something as large as the Enterprise D, which might be an aircraft carrier, uh, D Space Nine being a base, uh, an army base, there are far more personnel, 
uh, the chain of command is different, what is expected of you and your expertise, how you might use your skills is all different. It doesn't mean that any of the writers of any of these shows had military experience either. So you get some sort of mishmash that we try to make sense of as Star Trek fans, as if this were actually coherent whole, which it probably isn't. <laughs> what? You mean us fans making a fictional setting adherent to our reality? <laughs> That's never happened before. Especially not on this show. N especially, especially not on not. this show. What do we think of, uh, maybe as a, uh, a last topic how do we think that bedside manner or a doctor's duties and professionalism has changed if we believe in the star trek future are they just representing doctors today just in a future setting or do you actually see differences uh, that are brought on by that utopian future if you watch it as not necessarily a sequential like chronological piece but more of just a series development piece you do see the evolution going from less again our first example mccoy who kind of represents more of i don't want to say the idealized doctor but sort of a more grounded doctor who also serves as a multifunctionary piece to more of like almost the, I guess, idealized position as we got further and further along the series. Because I, probably I would say the closest we have to an actual real world physician, like somebody that we could go see on a clinic basis. And it almost pains me to say this, but I probably would actually say if you were to pick one that you and the listeners would feasibly encounter at an office might be actually Crusher. I'd probably say Crusher, realistically, might be probably most of the encounters that we have as a physician and patient basis. Dresses the part, too. <laughs> you know, she, the, the way they dress her is uh, closer to what you see in the uh, at the hospital with the lab coat. Well, not counting uh, Pulaski, but every subsequent one, it kind of becomes a bit more, I guess, idealized in one aspect or another. Like, again, from the enthusiasm of Bashir to the expertise and growing personality of Doctor slash EMH to the kind of interesting naturalistic approach of Phlox, it kind of takes on a bit more uh, differing, I don't want to say fantastical elements, but still, they become more specialized in their fields that they actually can experiment as characters in, I guess, their development, as it were, as a physician. I think Bashir, Phlox, and the EMH are science fiction heroes. Yes. Much more than the, the previous doctors who were... Who we might expect to see, you know, as people in our own lives, maybe based on actual doctors of the day. You know, there, there's something very 80s about Crusher. There's something very 60s about uh, McCoy. So, yeah, I, I agree with, with that. Who would be your physician? Who would you... We can go to the Starfleet Clinic, <laughs> choose a physician to be our family doctor or to treat whatever we have. Who would you pick? Is it still McCoy when... <laughs> Based on the, you know, being a favorite character, or is there a, a better choice in there? There's a side of me, and I only say this now because she's actually waking up for a nap. I would say I would love to have McCoy as our family doctor, 
because we are hopefully intending on starting a family and mm-hmm. if there's anybody I could see kind of helping stabilize the situation or at least boozing everybody up is McCoy to kind of ease the tension of starting a family. But realistically, again, and it's really odd for me to say because she's probably one of my least favorite examples, I would actually appreciate Beverly Crusher as a doctor because I know that, again, personality flaws that I saw in her, I do also know that she is also excellent at her job. So there's no denying that as a physician she again in my eyes wasn't exactly one of the most personable but as the most efficient without a doubt i'd probably go for her you know my tendency would be to go with crusher just because that's already my habit as far as health goes that that kind of that type and uh, you don't really get to know her as a patient you know it's, it's just she's very professional. You know, she gets the job done. She's not abrasive. She's not reproachful. Unlike Belaski, who might tell you what you're doing wrong, <laughs> kind of thing. You know, Beverly Crusher would seem to be a good... That would make sense. Although, after this talk, I kind of want my own EMH. You know, you don't have to go anywhere. Uh, you, you can sort of program him or nudge his programming one way or another based on... He probably can change his bedside manner based on your needs. You see, as a patient, an ideal patient, I would appreciate his character, but again, kind of going to the fact that he does kind of serve as a walking uh, WebMD example, he'd probably be my last choice as a physician, (laughs) because I am guilty of doing that as well, and immensely freaking myself out over various symptoms, so I'm pretty terrible about WebMDing myself, which is why I try to avoid it in my life as much as possible, so having one with a pleasant personality would be nice, but it also lead to me being a very inefficient member of Starfleet at that point because I would be fretting constantly and going over to the med center to get diagnoses for something that I'm just like, wait, my throat feels a little dry and I have a pounding headache. Yeah, uh, EMH, tell me what's wrong with me right now. (laughs) Well, get in line. Barkley has to go first. (laughs) And he wound up working on the EMH program. So uh, it it all loops back. I guess that, that makes sense. His own hypochondria sort of led him to become a, a holographic, and of course, his love of the holodeck made him the perfect choice to work on the next model of EMH, or the actually LMH, I guess it's the long-term medical hologram he works on that we see later. So it's interesting. I, I would still say EMH, I don't have a problem with um, WebMD, I don't use it, I'm not a hypochondriac, it, you know, I put off going to the doctor as long as I can, and I often say and feel like uh, I have Wolverine's powers. And if I have something today, I may not have it tomorrow uh, because I've, I've used, I don't know, willpower to get rid of ear infections. I, you know, I heal abnormally fast or used to from, uh, you know, scars and whatnot. So I always feel like, oh, well, I'm immortal, obviously. Well, oh, yeah, yeah. Rub that in the face of somebody that in about a week is also going to have to go to the dent, just to the dentist to get a bite splint because I'm crazy enough that I get a grinding issue. So, yeah, (laughs) go on with your immortality and your self-healing where I'm just, like, grinding my molars to dust at this point. I'm the kind of guy that says, oh, can we do without the anesthetic? I'm that guy. So, But having the EMH would be just a time saver for me, you know? I just activate him in the home. The medicine is so non-invasive in the Star Trek universe. You know, you could do the tests, you know, almost automatically. 
Uh, we're not getting any alien diseases. It's not going to be a tough call. Uh, and you just go woo, 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 over you, and they already know what's wrong with you. Uh, and if you have to go in, then you go in. I'd love to have Star Trek medicine as a reality. Yes. I mean, I don't know whose personal favorite physicians in Starfleet are out there for the listeners, but there's one thing we can all agree on. Oh my gosh, every time I watch any iteration of Star Trek, I am envious of their medical treatment. It just is so easy, and regardless if you just have, like, at that point, an undiagnosed alien disease, they're going to find it within the end of an episode. Now, how much real time that is, if you try and compare it to standard chronological pieces, you don't know. But feasibly, you could say, oh, it probably takes about a couple of hours for them to <laughs> essentially come to the diagnosis and come up with a solution. And does this involve you actively being sliced apart or indeed having any vastly invasive injections? It is the ideal medical future, without question. Yeah. Any last thoughts? Outside of the fact that, yes, medicine in Star Trek is awesome. And anybody can debate the efficiency of their positions. As I mentioned earlier, outside of, you know, having an optimistic human future in terms of personality, the other engaging thing and no reason I want to talk about um, the medical field in Star Trek is just the fact that it is such an interesting field as well because outside of the technology, there's always the interest of these doctors, whether real, basically programmed, or even alien. They're also finding their own way in this new universe as well. They're trying to discover everything that occurs because even later iterations of the series, there's always going to be the unknown. And it's interesting, even from just like a base medical drama perspective, to just see them tackle various issues that they may be familiar with, they may not be familiar with. So that is my last thoughts. That Yes, the adventure aspect is great about Star Trek, but also... Listeners, look out for the medical aspects of Star Trek, because those can also be very intriguing and just as engaging as, say, if you were binging, say, Grey's Anatomy. Think of it as Grey's Anatomy, except they fly around in a starship at that point. <laughs> yeah, and if you do have a favorite doctor, as far as bedside manner, someone you would employ as your own physician, let us know in the comments. Mike, where can people find you on the internet if they want to hear more? Well, for right now, I am still on my sabbatical phase, but you can still find my back work at classicjla.podbean.com, which is your site for Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast, where I am covering, and I know my mission statement was a bit skewed, where I said pre-crisis because I realized I had to talk about the Detroit League, which is a little bit after as well for a bridging hmm. point. But let's just say pre-Shag's turf for Justice League International as a blatant statement, where this coming season, post uh, 4th of July in the States, I will start tackling the satellite era. And I even put it up on the Facebook group. There may be a side feed show coming up as well, since I got ragged on for talking at length about comic advertisements. So that's yet to be titled, but that may be a forthcoming side attraction as well with the show launch. So once more, classicjla.podbean.com, and it is also searchable through iTunes. Pre-Legends JLA, I guess. Pre-Legends also works as a descriptor <laughs> as well. Uh, well, thank you for spending this uh, hour and some change with me talking about bedside manner you know i you said earlier you have to go to sigbay 
I do have to in- indeed report to sickbay. In fact, this moment of lucidity is kind of fading from me now. I'm starting to see visions, maybe having spots before my eyes. Oh, God. Does that mean I have to start WebMDing at this point? <laughs> well, your cough is a lot better than when you started the show. Well, thankfully, you caught me in a healthy spot. So I'll let you go to your chosen doctor, which I guess is Crusher. And uh, I'll, st- I'll stick around for uh, Subspace Transmissions, which is Star Trek News and your feedback on our cooking episode. Thank you very much. Take the Earth's mightiest heroes, each an invincible champion of justice, and band them together to assemble the legendary Justice League of America. For 261 issues and three annuals, the DC Universe was defended from threats on Earth and beyond by this legendary team. Operating from a cave in Happy Harbor to a satellite orbiting 22,300 miles above the Earth to uh, Detroit. Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast, will follow the League through all their evolutions. Please join your host, Mike Peacock, as I seek to cover all of the issues of the classic pre-crisis Justice League of America series. Through the magic of the JLA transporter, each issue will be randomized, with special episodes covering a complete story arc if needed. Along with the issue coverage, we shall also look at what the then-current members of the Justice League were up to in solo appearances in other comics for the JLA cover month issue. So do not hesitate to activate your JLA signal device for Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast on classicjla.podbean.com or by subscribing through iTunes. In Star Trek news, Aaron Harberts and Gretchen Berg are out as showrunners on Star Trek Discovery after the latest flurry of accusations about creating a toxic work environment, and Alex Kurtzman is set to take over as the sole showrunner for the series' second season. Kurtzman was already executive producer on the show and hmm, co-wrote Star Trek Into Darkness. And he's just signed a five-year deal with CBS to not only run Discovery, but work on what is called the expansion of the franchise, which would seem to include a Starfleet Academy show from Gossip Girl creators Stephanie Savage and Josh Schwartz, a con miniseries, a new animated series, and now rumors are floating that Patrick Stewart might return as Jean-Luc Picard on television. We'll keep you posted about any developments, of course. Star Trek The Animated Series is crossing over with Transformers in a new IDW comic launching in September. It's written by Michael Johnson and John Barner with art by Philip Murphy. This Saturday morning mashup will be four issues long, so when it's done, let me know if anyone wants to do an episode of FW Team Up on it. Big Finish Audio, the creators of a wide variety of Doctor Who full and limited cast audios, but also Blake 7, Sherlock Holmes, and other franchises, has released a teaser for a Star Trek Prometheus audiobook. The USS Prometheus, from Voyager's Message in a Bottle, has its own series of books already, but is Big Finish testing the waters for possible original cast Star Trek audio stories? Who knows? We'll have to stay on top of developments. And we end on sadder news. 
Science fiction legend Harlan Ellison has died at age 84. As you probably know, he wrote and then proceeded to complain about what is possibly Star Trek's greatest television episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. Check out episode 20 of this very podcast, where we spotlighted his original script and intentions. Of course, this was just a high-profile drop in the bucket for this prolific writer who wrote more than 1,700 short stories, novellas, screenplays, and essays, Uh, His other television work included consulting on Babylon 5 and The Twilight Zone. He won eight Hugo Awards and holds a record for the most nominations, eight, and most wins, three, for the Nebula Award for Best Short Story. The Fire & Water Podcast Network offers its condolences to his wife and family. Your comments on episode 22, our cooking show. Uh, Me and Amélie got together and made a three-course meal, so... What did you think? Uh, these are all comments from fireandwaterpodcast.com. Ryan Daly starts us off with uh, this comment. As someone with limited culinary abilities and limited TNG knowledge, I confess that I only understood about a third of what you two were saying throughout the episode. That said, the joy in your voices throughout the show made for an incredibly fun and pleasant experience. Great episode. Now, let's find me some cake. Yeah, and I made that cake again. I I simply had to. Uh, Chris Franklin says, Listening to the episode in the morning at work is making my lunch break seem years away. What a fun idea and a great listen. You guys should do an FW superhero cooking special based on either the old or newer DC cookbooks or both. My friend Bass from the First Strike, the Invasion podcast might be planning something to that effect. I don't want to scoop him right now. Scoop, get it? Uh, Brian Linton says, My wife loves both Earl Grey tea and chocolate, so I may have to attempt the cake for her birthday, which is coming up in the near future. Hopefully, I can enlist my daughter's assistance because she actually knows how to bake. Thank you for the inspiration. Rob Kelly says, What a fun episode. You guys are ready for AM Fire and Water. It would have cooking with Cisco and Emily, fashion with Nathaniel and Vera, weather with Shag, movie reviews with Rob, family corner with the Franklins, book chat with Max, travel with Zoom, and news with Ryan. Don't write checks you can't cash, (laughs) Rob. I'm afraid this could actually happen. Uh, Kurt Onstad says, I was waiting to hear, now what am I supposed to do with 5,000 wrappages of Yamek sauce from Faith Treachery and the Great River on that Deep Space Nine episode? I guess I'll keep waiting. Yeah, I I just forgot all about that quote, and I should have used it during the show. I'm sorry. Uh, Max Travers says, a podcast about a cookbook? A cookbook that doesn't even have all the pictures? It just can't work. But it did, and really well. This was was a super fun episode. I raise a glass of Tranya to you. Thank you, Max. This was a concern, I have to say. I mean, doing a cooking show with audio only and, you know, a very limited way to, to show it even on the website. Uh, so I wasn't sure if it would work. I thought, well, is this, this too noisy? And it did work as atmosphere. I'm glad you guys liked it. And so is Amidi. She's stoked. I've sent her all these comments and she enjoyed all of them. Uh, Ice D says, this was an unusual but quite fun episode. I was a bit tickled by you and Amélie discussing Old Bay. Old Bay Spice is fairly ubiquitous here in the Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Maryland area. Seriously, one of the local potato chip companies uses it as a seasoning for a product they call crab chips. And I know many families that keep it on the table along with salt and pepper. I can send you a tin if you'd like to use it for another batch of Plomique soup. It was in the Plomique soup. Ooh, that would be disgusting. <laughs> it was for the shrimp. Uh, Boston Moss says, well, that was cool. Don't listen to it while hungry. Well, I can understand someone outside the mid-Atlantic region not having Old Bay at hand, though you should. It's a great spice combo. But not having nutmeg? You're missing out on a versatile flavor profile that is many a chef's secret twist. 
Once you get some Old Bay, try it on popcorn. Yum. Yeah, the nutmeg is totally my fault. I was sure that I, normally I have nutmeg. Uh, we did a fast little replacement uh, because we didn't want to go back to the store just for that amount of nutmeg. It was ridiculous. Santarin says, tiny bit of my background first. My culinary education is both from Cincinnati in the States and from southern Jutland, Denmark. So here we have an actual cook just to school us and school the cookbook. He says, I've never been a fan generally of sci-fi and fantasy cookbooks where you're looking at dishes that have recipes that are pretending to be recipes of something that we couldn't actually make or try. Given that, uh, he has these comments. Earl Grey tea is a black tea that is flavored with bergamot orange, a hybrid between lemons and bitter oranges. Okay. Uh, it also says, generally speaking, the best way to melt chocolate, if you can't stir it into what it is being used for and using the heat of the dish, is to put the chocolate in a metal bowl that will partly sit in a pot. Put water in the pot to a level uh, that will not touch the bowl with the chocolate and bring it to a low simmer, stirring the chocolate constantly until melted. This is a bain-marie. I know what it is. <laughs> totally, again, uh, this was uh, not user error, but user laziness. Neither I nor Amélie wanted to go through that whole process, and uh, I, I'm the idiot who burnt it using the microwave. Yeah. He actually fixes some of these recipes. Go to fireandwaterpodcast.com to, to, to see the actual way that he does it. I will partially read his answer. He says, looking at the recipe for the soup, it appears to me, as an example, that they put things in the wrong order and don't know the meaning of cooking terms. For example, to saute is to fry quickly in a little hot fat. So when it says saute the chopped onions very slowly in half a cup of butter, that's not sauteing. Then it goes on to say when onions are transparent, so thereafter people sweating the onions. Then they say to brown the carrots, but for 30 minutes. If they're looking at the length of time, they're probably more after caramelizing the carrots. This adds flavor and might help color the liquid. Uh, looking at what I believe they are trying to do, I think it would be better to put the butter in the pan, then the carrots on medium-low heat to caramelize the carrots, then drop the heat down and put both the onions and celery in the pan. This will sweat the onions and the water from the celery uh, and will keep them from browning while giving the celery some time to soften. With the shrimp, you will have an easier time controlling the tenderness if you steam rather than uh, boil, which really should be at a simmer and more of a poaching. So there you have it. Fixes from Suntard. Uh Tim Price then says, sadly, we'll never see Siskoid trying to crush that ice, but it sounded hilarious. Thanks for a really fun show. Uh, thanks, Tim. I cut a lot of sound from that moment. It lasted a while. That was the website. Now, uh, Facebook likes and shares from Alan W. Wright, Chris Franklin, Clinton Robison. Says, damn it, Siskoid, you're making me hungry. David Byer Jr., Gautam Shoren of Pulp to Pixels Podcast. John Tipton, who says, what happens in real life with real Cardassians? Canada really is a different place, I guess. Hmm. Uh, Jonah Ache, who just gave us four exclamation points. José Robichaud, Luc Landry, Martin Gray, Max Traver, Mike Peacock, Philippe André Collette. Rich Matsumoto says, funny that you post a picture of Neelix, my high school crush, a girl named Peggy Jo Jacobs, is a Z-list actress. One of her early roles was on Voyager. She played a Klingon who wanted to mate with Neelix. It's a small world, what can I say, Rich? Rob Kelly says, Siskoid, get Amelie's dad on the show. Yeah, he's a Trekkie, but apparently, Amelie says he's extremely shy and would not speak on Mike. 
We'll see about that. Uh, Shag Matthews on Google uh, Pluses from The Hammer Strikes. Twitter retweets and favorites from Abel Mavada, Amelie Montoul, Between the Pages, Cash Flag, Chris, Chuck Rodriguez, Cuffing Comics, Dr. G Nerdologist, who says he's surprised the soup didn't ask for a puree to really get the color. Mm-hmm. Earth 2 Chris, Frank, Luke Giaconetti, Max Romero of his Plastic Man, Michael, Rob Kelly Creative, Ryan Daly, Scott X, Soundtrack Alley, The Mirror Factory, Tim Price, Trekonomics, Trekbot, we welcome our robot overlords, Uncanny Nerdverse, and Willie Yarbrough. I know I'm probably missing some. I recorded this rather early. My apologies if I miss out your name. You're all important, and I appreciate your patronage. If you want to leave a message, do so at fireandwaterpodcast.com. That's really the best place. Though I will accept the Fire and Water Facebook page or Twitter uh, with the hashtag FWPodcasts. Until the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly 